welcome to Horsehair Wigs from Irish Rule of Law International. My name is Evelyn McCafferty and on this month's show we're talking to... My friends and colleagues when I told them about Ecoside, they were like, yeah. That's Maud Sarliev, a human rights and international criminal lawyer, advocating for a creative legal thinking to mitigate climate change and protect the environment. My interest came from that, what can I do with my life, my professional life that's going to have more meaning. Maud has travelled and worked internationally on UN backed tribunals for the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime and for the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, among others. My starting point was my expertise and how I could connect the dots. In this interview with Maud, we discuss what the proposed international crime of ecocide is all about. That's the thing, there's no, it's a concept, there's no actual uh, universally accepted definition of ecocide. And we talk to Maud about her current role advising the Office of the Prosecutor General in Ukraine on the investigation and prosecution of war crimes impacting the environment. Well, it's it's a unique situation because it's the first time that in the context of an ongoing conflict, the environmental impact of the conflict is considered as a priority. Delighted to have Maud on the programme this month, who starts off by talking to us about what drove her in developing creative legal thinking to address the environmental and climate crisis. It was in 2015, 2016 that I started to look into these issues. And the first reason is because I got a little bit disheartened with uh, international criminal law, international human rights law and and international jurisdictions and tribunals, because I realised that they were really slow, really expensive and perhaps not as impactful as I would have liked. But that said, it's also part of my understanding or the way that I look at it is because I, I see all these jurisdictions, these international jurisdictions, including the International Criminal Court as a teething stage, sort of. Um, they were created only 20 years ago. And when you look at the common law systems or the civil law systems, they have been you know, operating for hundreds and hundreds of years and are still finding little ways, or little or big ways to to adjust, um, to find a balance in the fairness of trial. It's a good point. It's still relatively in its infancy. Exactly. But my interest came from this sort of disheartening feeling that what can I do with my life, my professional life, that's, you know, going to hopefully be a little more impactful and have more meaning and be more relevant. And that's how I started to look at ecocide because, yeah, my starting point was my expertise. So my expertise was international criminal law, international human rights law, and how I could connect the dots between that expertise, that experience of 10, 15 years of, of practice with better protection of the environment and fighting against climate change, which I couldn't quite understand at the time. And that's how I, I started off from ecocide, trying to understand what it meant, how it had been developed, at which stage it was, what were the limits in theory, but also in practice. And well, just for our listeners, would you mind giving them a brief definition of what ecocide is actually? Because it's not fully implemented as a law in every jurisdiction in every country. That's the thing. There's no, it's a concept. There's no actual uh, universally accepted definition of ecocide. Arguably, it doesn't exist as such at the moment. You have various proposals of definitions. The last one for the International Criminal Court that was published in June 
last year and you also have it incriminated in a limited number of domestic legislations including ukraine the ukraine criminal code provides for a definition and it, it invariably refers to uh, some sort of massive destruction of fauna and flora but that's about it i don't want to get into the nuances of its specific definition because they remain quite vague it has a long-term widespread and systematic aspect to it but that's the vagueness of the definition which sometimes which always creates uncertainty and then the other challenge associated with the definition of ecocide is the mens rea the intention well, when you have an environmental disaster or catastrophe thank god not always and that's a shame but uh, most of the time it's non-intentional you have exceptions of course if we look at when it comes to conflict related ecocide because ecocide applies in times of peace as well as in times of conflict but in times of conflict the most famous examples are nagasaki hiroshima and the use of the nuclear weapon in these areas and the impact it's had on the environment completely no case law about that and then the destruction of the mangrove of the mekong delta in vietnam through the use of um, this famous defoliant that was spread by the American forces. And you also have, again, in conflict examples of the uh, burning of wells in Iraq or destructions of martial lands, petlands in Mesopotamia in the context of the war in Kuwait. But aside from that, in terms of other examples of ecocide in times of peace include arguably the destruction of the Amazon forest to a large extent or the dumping of toxic hazardous wastes in developing countries. There's a very famous case, the Provo-Cola case, which relates to the dumping of toxic wastes in the um, harbour of Abidjan, the Canal de Fredi. But yeah, in each of these cases, there's a huge issue with who can be held responsible, who can be held accountable, aside from what is the threshold at from which point you can consider that the destruction of the environment is amounting to ecocide and also the various categories. So it's a fantastic tool as a concept to create a space for these debates. But is it a solution? That's, that's uh, well... It's still to be debated, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but very interesting going back because when I did look at your experience, I thought, oh, right, OK, so even things you can apply to, you know, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crimes, you know, in relation to cross-border crime and, you know, poaching and the importing of species. And then when you're looking at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, you know, you're looking at a lot of displacement at the moment, you know. So in a way, you're you are bringing your great experience in understanding of the world to apply it to something very, very relevant today, in which there's no real international legislation beyond this proposed definition of ecocide. But there are a huge amount of environmental litigation challenges happening internationally now, actually, and kind of have really sort of gained momentum over the last couple of years. Which leads me to my next question in relation to the work that you're currently doing, advising the Office of the Prosecutor General in Ukraine on the investigation and prosecution of war crimes impacting the environment. Can you tell us about that? Well, it's it's a unique situation because it's the first time that in the context of an ongoing conflict, the environmental impact of the conflict is considered as a priority and raises a huge amount of interest. Well, actually, it's the first time even when the conflict is not ongoing that the environmental impact of the conflict is raising so much interest and considered as a priority because, well, you were mentioning international law, 
there is no case law as such regarding any crime related to the destruction of the environment in the context of a conflict or in times of peace. The law really must be adapted and should be adapted given the environmental and climate crisis that we're living through. And with respect to the work that I do with the prosecution office in Ukraine, my role is an advising role. I am sharing what I know and the expertise that I've built through my own research, through my own practice, to try and offer new avenues to look at certain acts and conducts and certain impacts. And to this end, I use, of course, the international legal framework, albeit inadapted, and I try to push for um, a creative interpretation of its provisions. And we're talking about the additional protocol one of the Geneva Conventions. We're talking about the Rome Statutes uh, and the way that the war crimes are defined under the Rome Statute for the law and principles of occupation and various treaties and various conventions but that's for international law there's also the domestic law that's really really important and relevant and even though i'm not ukrainian and not an expert at all in the interpretation and understanding of ukrainian law i know that there is this provision of ecocide that potentially could be or is about to be tested by the ukrainian jurisdictions with respect to um, certain cases, I suspect. It's been publicly discussed, so I'm not revealing anything confidential here. And they also have another provision in their criminal code, which calls for the transposition of the treaties and conventions on war crimes adopted by the Ukrainian parliament. So that also opens a wide range of possibilities as to which particular provision and which particular treaty could be used in the domestic legal order to charge certain crimes with respect to the impact on the environment that the conflict is having and has had. But what's really interesting in the situation of Ukraine is that you have an unprecedented alignment of, on the one hand, a really strong and solid determination from the judicial authorities to look at these crimes, to look at the environmental impact of the conflict. And then on the other hand, separately, you have a political agenda from President Zelensky that's really clearly outlined in the 10-point peace plan, which also involves looking very closely into issues of ecocide, issues of water treatment, issues of nuclear safety, issues of civilian infrastructure, the impact of their being targeted, etc., etc. So in a nutshell, the conditions are gathered as never before to take huge steps in the direction of case law that will hopefully provide for a deterrent effect and, and one step forward in the direction of the better protection of the environment. You're very embedded in this. Can you tell us or give us some examples as to what's actually happening at the moment environmentally in Ukraine? First of all, I think I should make it very clear that you have environmental litigation on the one hand and climate litigation on the other hand. And even though there are overlaps between the two, those are completely different types of litigation. Environmental litigation relates to pollution and impact on fauna and flora, the destruction of certain ecosystems, for example, whereas climate litigation is about the volume of greenhouse gas emissions. Those are two different things. When it comes to the work of the Office of the Prosecutor General in Ukraine at the moment, first of all, 
the environmental impact of the conflict is one of the various impacts of the conflicts that they have to look at uh, in the context of their prosecution. It includes developing a strategy as to how you charge, how you investigate, how you prosecute the destruction of a dam, the shelling of uh, certain infrastructures, and the impact they've had on the dissemination of some sort of chemical waste, the quality of the air, the quality of the soil, the quality of the water. But it's very, very early days. So at this point in time, it's really about trying to first collect information as to what's happened and as to the extent of the impact it's had on the environment. We're also talking about minefields, which are not necessarily mapped but will eventually lead to farmland not being farmed and then crop not being collected and wheat cereals not not being produced and people uh, starving because of this lack of food. So again, very, very early days, many, many different issues, enormous challenges. And the way I see my role is to try my best to help and assist with what I can think of and what I know uh, to address these challenges. Along with what's happening in Ukraine, what we've been experiencing globally, and you've mentioned it, food insecurity, displacement, forced migration, disease, death, extreme poverty because of climate change, with the most vulnerable populations being impacted, the most exacerbating this inequality that we have and perpetuating injustice. Given your experience in this, having kind of gone down this avenue a good couple of years ago, what cases have you worked on, Maud, and what cases do you think are relevant in this climate question? So a few years ago, after having conducted research and tested various ideas in a theoretical context in climate conferences, I came to the conclusion that it was time for me to test these ideas in the field. And I decided to go to South America and started with Colombia, then Ecuador, and then eventually Brazil. And the whole idea was to try and assess and to which extent provisions of the Rome Statute under Article 7 could be used to look at the consequences of mass deforestation as a crime against humanity. And the reason why it's connected with climate is because it's deforestation and forests act as climate sinks. So given the scale and the pace at which the Amazon forest was increasingly destroyed after the election of Jair Bolsonaro, I thought that this might be a good way to look at it as a case study. And that led to um, the filing of submissions before the Office of the Prosecutor General of the International Criminal Court in October 2021. So in this particular case, the, the climate aspect was again indirectly addressed with the assistance of a fantastic team of scientists from Oxford who looked at the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that could be attributed to Bolsonaro as a result of the deforestation at such a scale. And the result was not surprising, but a little bit disappointing because it's minimum given what are the key causes of climate change. The key causes of climate change and global warming are not only deforestation as a massive scale, but also the use of fossil fuels that our society depends on. So in that sense, you have many different cases which are being litigated as we speak, approaching the issue from various different angles, but mostly domestically by lawyers who have used the flagship case called Urgenda as their inspiration 
And uh, Urgenda was a case that was won in the Netherlands after years and years of litigation, where basically it was argued that the Dutch government had failed to comply with its obligation, including its human rights obligation, the right to life, the right to private and family life, in not complying with its commitment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And that's opened the floodgates to a number of other cases. So in terms of climate cases, the Brazilian one is the one that I can see with the most relevance to it. So this was a case, you were head of a legal team for the Allwise Environmental and Litigation NGO, which basically said that the former president, as you said, Bolsonaro, must be held criminally responsible for the country's assault on the Amazon rainforest. Now, you have mentioned it, but just to give maybe our listeners who don't have such a a huge understanding of how crucial, I suppose, the Amazon rainforest is, not just to Brazil and its surrounding countries, but also our planet. It's a huge carbon sink, as you said. It absorbs one fourth of the carbon dioxide absorbed by all the land on Earth. But the amount absorbed today, and I guess this is one of the main reasons for the challenge as well, is 30% less than it was in the 90s because of deforestation, with the land mostly deforested to make way for cattle ranching, so double jeopardy. Bolsonaro's government and his presidency was marked by increased destruction of the rainforest, as well as increased attacks on indigenous people living in the Amazon region. And this submission, as you said, it was to the International Criminal Court. So what is the argument that he should be held accountable for the emissions under his presidency? And how do you even equate something like that? Well, no, that's exactly not it. Uh, And I'm very grateful (laughs) for you to ask the question. You're listening to Horsehair Wigs from Irish Rule of Law International with me, Evelyn McClafferty. Our guest on this month's show is Maud Sarliev, an international lawyer who looks at different legal avenues in addressing the environmental and climate crisis. Before Maud clarifies what the case against the former Brazilian president is about, we just wanted to tell you a little about this podcast. It's funded by Irish Aid and is brought to you by Irish Rule of Law International, IRLI. IRLI is an NGO which uses the rule of law to tackle global injustice and is supported by members of both branches of the legal profession throughout the island of Ireland. You can find out about its work on its website, irishruleoflaw.ie. Back now to this month's guest, Maud Sarliev, who talks about the legal case she was involved in with the Allwise Environmental Litigation Group against the former Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro. It was to point the finger at Bolsonaro and his administration for developing a policy which they knew, given the, the previous governments and the, the policies they had developed in the 70s, 80s, and the impact that had been observed, that these policies would have a huge impact on the environment, on the destruction of the rainforests. And instead of trying to hinder the drivers for the destruction of the rainforest, the administration in place under the leadership of Bolsonaro opened the gates, like they deregulated, they uh, legalized what was illegal, the demarcation policies were thrown out of the window. And not only that had a huge impact on the environment and the pace and scale of the destruction of the rainforest, but automatically had also a huge impact on the civilian populations depending on it or defending it. So you have a group of environmental defenders and environmental dependents, as we defined it, who couldn't access drinkable water because it had been contaminated by gold mining. 
which exploded after the uh, 2nd of January where Bolsonaro entered into power, they couldn't access edible food because a lot of them also depend on fish in the rivers and the rivers became so contaminated by pesticide, by mercury. And But the, the bottom line is that because the environment, because the rainforest, because the rivers, because the fauna and flora are destroyed as a result of these policies, you have people who lack access to food, to water, whose habitats are being destroyed so they don't have housing. The concept of property is a challenging one in these areas because the territories are so immense that it's a different culture and different way to approach things. But the right to religion as well is being challenged. I mean, it inflicts really, really serious sufferings um, because of all these human rights, fundamental human rights, which are impacted. But it also supports the organized criminal groups who conduct operations of land grabbing, who conducts murders, who uh, get rid of anything and anyone who are in their ways to exploiting natural resources. And the most famous case that we're recently, well, it's been a year now, uh, heard of is the example of this uh, Guardian journalist who got killed with his Brazilian friend and colleague, who is also a very renowned journalist in Brazil, as they were investigating precisely um, these issues and the drivers and the dynamics behind it. So the point of the communication was really to look in detail into these drivers and see to which extent and how they could be connected with the policies developed by the administration of Jair Bolsonaro and then argue that they should be considered a crime against humanity because of the murders, persecutions and other inhuman acts that they were causing. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you did clarify that because, you know, there are major historical emitters and it is in Brazil, actually, when you look at the US. But another big emitter, certainly at the moment, is Russia. And you did have a very interesting article. I read it. It was in the run up to COP last year, the UN Climate Talks. And it went into detail about Russian activists taking the Kremlin to court of the country's climate policy. And this was very interesting to me because I actually had not heard about this case. So some background for our listeners. We're talking here about Russia, the world's fourth largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions the Russian Arctic and Siberia, which cover at least 60% of Russian territory, are among the regions with the strongest warming worldwide. And the rapid disappearance of sea ice on the Arctic is seen as a transport and navigation opportunity by Russian authorities and others in the region. Let's be honest about that. But this is all at a time when the country is relying more and more on its fossil fuel exports to help fund its invasion of Ukraine. And um, I'd love to know more about that Russian case. I agree with you that this case didn't get as much media coverage as I would have liked it to get. But that's precisely the reason why I wrote this op-ed. It's because I I really wanted to give a voice as much as I could to those who filed and submitted these claims back in September 2022. They are based in Russia. And indeed, those submissions were against a presidential decree and government piece of legislation. So going directly against the Kremlin. I'm not sure at which stage it is now, but the whole idea was to start this before the 16th of September. It was filed on the 11th, because the 16th of September was the date at which the Russian Federation would no longer be a high contracted party to the European Court of Human Rights, because obviously the collective of human rights lawyers and activists who filed these submissions didn't expect to get any sort of positive outcome from the Russian jurisdictions. 
That said, the idea was to, once the older remedies, national remedies or national courts possibilities and avenues have been exhausted, then you can bring it to the European Court of Human Rights and then get a ruling from the European Court of Human Rights as to which human rights have been breached as a result, what is argued to be an illegal approach to climate change. But the case was basically challenging the national strategy developed by the Kremlin as incompatible with the Russian Federation's constitution and its commitment on an international level, including the European Convention for Human Rights. Interestingly, the Russian constitution includes a provision protecting the right to a healthy environment, which is generally completely ignored. But what's also interesting is what the strategy was, how it was designed and, and what it was arguing. The, the, the national strategy for Russia, if I understood it correctly, basically said we are happy to increase our extraction, treatment and use of fossil fuels for the foreseeable future because we have all these boreal forests covering immense surfaces and parts of our territory, which are going to act as a carbon sink. And, you know, it's going to balance itself out. So it's all good. The reality is a little different because as a result of the use, extraction and treatment of fossil fuel, not only in Russia, but uh, all over the world, global warming and climate change is already under its way. And it is giving way to a number of various escalating effects, including the permafrost, this soil that's frozen all over the years, is no longer frozen all over the years. So you have methane wells opening up from nowhere and methane is one of the greenhouse gases that are contributing to climate change. There's also the albedo effect. The albedo effect is uh, the fact that white reflects the light back whereas black or dark colors absorb it and the ice cap over the Arctic and the Antarctic is shrinking so as a result instead of having white light reflected back to the atmosphere we have the ocean that's darker, which absorbs it and contributes in an escalating way to global warming. So permafrost, methane wells, albedo effects, but also because of all of this, we have temperature raising in the Arctic Circle. And that in itself is weakening the boreal forests, which do act as a carbon sink. New beetles are coming to damage the already vulnerableized trees. And that opens all possibilities to this forest burning much, much more faster, which is what we've been observing not only in Siberia, in Russia, but also in Scandinavia, in Canada. So, yes, very good. Thank you very much, Kremlin, for developing this climate strategy and for arguing that the boreal forests are going to absorb the greenhouse gas emissions that you're contributing to produce. But that's not true. Yeah, it's such an avalanche, isn't it? You know, it's such a domino effect. And I think it's becoming more and more clear to people as well how our oceans cannot absorb this. And actually, we need ice-capped mountains. And, you know, maybe these things weren't previously better understood, but now I suppose climate science is so widely available and communicated that there is a better understanding, actually. Yes, but I think I think it's really key what you just said with the diffusion of climate scientists' work. 
what I've noticed, and I include me in that observation, is that there's a gap between the way the law and the lawyers approach these issues and the way the science and the scientists approach these issues. Like we don't speak the same language and because we don't speak the same language, we don't necessarily understand each other. So I think one of the key priorities for the near future is to indeed you know, develop bridges between the scientists and the lawyers like for at least one great reason aside from litigation is just to agree on a common list of issues and possible methods and avenues to address them and communicate that to the policymakers so that they can make informed decisions as to how to develop their own policies so it's a big translation and interpretation exercise that we need to tackle on as soon as possible and also for journalists it's something that we 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 need to better communicate actually you know but as you said um the expertise is with the scientists and so you know there needs to be some sort of a forum that we can all come together maybe in order to do that you know you mentioned something very very interesting there how much is taught about climate litigation in our kind of educational systems but that maybe leads me to the next question of what kind of climate litigation is there that's been really successfully used internationally? Well, the, the most famous case is the Uganda case that I was mentioning a bit earlier. It started in 2013, first instance 2015, appeals 2018, and definite success, I think, uh, shortly afterwards. And I was living in The Hague at the time, so I got the privilege to attend the appeals hearing, and it was so exhilarating, even though there weren't many taking it seriously at the time, which was also very surprising. It's not the case anymore, but at the time when I first spoke around my friends, and colleagues when I told them about ecocide they were like yeah but it's normal and I don't blame them at all what do you mean by it's normal and that you don't blame them it's the most pressing issue of our time actually yeah but that's all of this came from the assumption that's been going on for years that water air food all of this is renewable and it's only very recently that there's there's been this global awareness that it's not and that we are actually endangered as a species. So that's why I don't blame them. Because even back in 2018, the debate was more to climate scepticism than how to address climate change. So we all live in our little bubbles and those bubbles are bursting and now there's this common awareness that's rising and rising and rising. And it's more important to focus about that and how it can be useful to develop tools and instruments to better protect the environment and address this climate change issue for the future rather than looking at the past. So that's why I, I don't blame anybody because myself, when I realized that it was the most pressing issues of our time, it was, it was already arguably too late. And going back to the education part... It's been a long time since I last left university as a student, so I am not the best place, perhaps, to make any comments about the way that climate-related issues are being taught in universities today, to the extent that I'm not contributing to these lectures and teaching, because I'm trying as much as possible to provide some sort of tools and speak at conferences and organise or moderate panels where these issues are discussed and how the law can be an interesting tool for change in that particular perspective. 
and also educate educate is it sounds a little arrogant but just open people's eyes as to what they can do if they give themselves credit and time to train themselves and use these tools I, I think that's another thing that's developing incrementally as we speak. There's a huge rising interest that I've noticed because I'm invited to speak in these conferences more and more than ever. And at the same time, I'm also invited to speak in podcasts and uh, <laughs> more and more than ever. Delighted to have you. <laughs> So I'm like, yay, well, that's a good sign. Um, and hopefully uh, it will keep on going that way. Not the podcasts, but the rising interest. <laughs> <laughs> um, Maud, I just wanted to finish up by basically stating facts. We're looking at the last eight years being the warmest on record, according to the World Meteorological Organization. Record-breaking heat and, you know, floods, international waters reaching record-breaking highs, where glaciers melting at dramatic speed. But you are hopeful, aren't you? You do believe there is good happening and opportunity to, to make better. Yes, indeed. But th- 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 yeah, it's, it's pretty grim and depressing if you look at it from the angle of the impact it's having now. And also, if you look at the powers in place and how sometimes certain corporate actors, not all of them, are really contributing to making more money, but not necessarily to uh, improving the situation. But it's not helpful, is it? And I do go through the roller coaster when sometimes I think, oh my goodness, what is this all for? Uh, We're doomed. Uh, And sometimes also I hear friends who are completely depressed and consider that we're completely doomed, but that's not helpful. But is it the truth, though? Is it the truth? When arguably it could be too late. Well, yes, but if you take this approach, anything is too late and there's nothing worth doing or worth living. So I've got this philosophy that you know each little step is a step forward. And what I am trying to do is contribute to the best of my ability to raise awareness further, to be creative and to try and find new ways to connect the dots and build these bridges and do my share with the hope that it's going to lead to bigger things in the future as part of a more general movement. And there is reason for hope, because if you, like we were saying just a few minutes ago, a few years ago, five years ago, nobody really well, didn't take these things as seriously as they do now. And now you have determination from a lot of policy makers and lawyers and scientists to get together and find ways to address the crisis that we live in. My part in that is really limited. It's just to try and find ways to contribute to an adaptation of the law, international law, national law, wherever I'm asked, or wherever I find a leverage to the environmental and climate crisis that we're going through. And that's just one piece of the puzzle. But the puzzle is big and more and more people are motivated and mobilized to find the right pieces and put them together to address the uh, crisis and find solutions to the issues. So, yes, I'm hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) On, On a hopeful note, I'd like to end this. Let's watch this space. Thanks for the chat today. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. Maud Sarlia there, a human rights and international criminal lawyer advocating for creative legal thinking to mitigate climate change and protect the environment. That's it for this month's show. From me, Evelyn McCafferty, and Irish Rule of Law International. Until next time, thanks for listening.